0: This episode of the Oz Movie Geek podcast is sponsored by Kix. Kix is an online film and television retailer specializing in the latest Sony, Universal and Paramount films and television shows. You can use the exclusive code OZGEEK15 to receive 15% off your order. Thank you to the wonderful team at Kix. Now to the review. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Today I'll be doing a review of the live action prequel uh, to the 101 Dalmatian saga, Cruella. Um, and this was a film that I was a bit hesitant in watching just because I have not been a fan of Disney's live action adaptations. Um, I really don't like The Lion King. I think Aladdin is quite terrible and bland. Uh, I thought that Beauty and the Beast was also very bland. I like Pete's Dragon quite a bit, Um, funnily enough. I think it was actually a really fun movie, and I think it's because the original isn't fantastic. But like Alice in Wonderland, uh, even Cinderella, all these films just are very bland. They don't really have that signature style to them. There's, There's nothing really going on. Behind the camera, I mean, it's a bit disappointing too because there have been some really talented filmmakers that have worked on these films. Like we have Beauty and the Beast was directed by Bill Condon who is quite talented. I also enjoy John Favreau, but The Lion King was just so bland. And even The Jungle Book to a certain extent is quite bland. Yes, it is visually striking, but as far as like style and substance, it's just shot so plainly. There's nothing really... Going on behind, you know, the, the uh, you know behind the screen, it just feels like it's very one note, and there's not a lot to really attach yourself to. Even Aladdin, I mean, Aladdin's directed by Guy Ritchie, and Guy Ritchie is one of my favorite filmmakers. So it just comes down to the fact that all these adaptations don't really have a reason to exist outside of making money for the studio. Now, you could argue that every film's aim is to you know make money, but I think that there's a level of artistic integrity that goes to actually making a a film. There's a way to actually make a film that's going to make money, whilst also providing something new. Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King are the two that I'll continue to go back to. Both of these films don't really offer anything new to their respective stories. Both of them feel like carbon copies, like taking the animated product and making it into a live action feature length film. And that's what both of those films did. Now, you could argue that, you know, the the lesser films um, in, in this series haven't received as much attention or didn't make as much money like Cinderella or Maleficent or Maleficent 2, I think Mistress of Evil, that film was called. All of these films, at least they still felt like they were a little different. Like the Maleficent films aren't fantastic, but there's something going on there that's a bit different because it does tell, you know, a different kind of story. It is exploring different themes. Cinderella has that same problem, but Cinderella's elevated because it does have a really talented cast. Lily James is fantastic. Kate Blanchett's really good in that film too. But I guess what it boils down to is that each of these films have felt very, very mundane and very similar to one another, whether it be just tonally or whether it be just the bland visual Disney-esque look. So Cruella sort of struck me a little differently and that's why I want to talk about it because, like I said, I wasn't really looking forward to it because I thought it was just more Disney Fair releasing a film, you know, onto Disney Plus, Premiere Access and into theatres, trying to make a quick buck with that title Cruella and just trying to draw fans of that original 101 Dalmatians film, either the animated one or the original live action one from 2001, I think it came out. So That's what it kind of felt like. It felt like that's what Disney were doing. Craig Gillespie, the director, is someone who I'm actually a big fan of. So naturally, again, I I had that intrigue there just because of him, but the trailer didn't really engage me all that much. So I think that's a good introduction point or introductory point um, to really this discussion and what I'm going to talk about with Cruella. But I just wanted to get all of that out in the open first before we delve into the actual review. So... Let's just have a, have a spell for a second, um, and we'll get stuck into that review. So without further ado, let's just get stuck into it. So take it away, trailer. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels, you're dead. If I'd cared about anyone or thing, I might have died. You have the talent. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question. Hmm. She thought she owned everyone. That's foolish. Unhinged. Well, you're fired. Why are you speaking? I think you've nicked me. But there's something about poetic justice that's just so poetic. You won't admit you love me. And so how do you like to know you always tell me? Get her. This doesn't have to be a scene. It really, really does. Can I like remind you all that I'm doing this in Heels? What was your name? Cruella. If you can know. Make- You in? I do love trouble. Oh, love that little. You have a bit of an extreme side. Yes, darling. And what fun that is. She stole my dogs. <laughs> I guess you must hate her. She has made it me or her. And I choose me. Don't tell me. lots more bad things coming perhaps 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 Perhaps. so cruella was uh directed it wasn't written for um by sorry um but it was directed by craig gillespie and stars emma stone emma thompson joel fry paul walter hauser uh john mccrae mark strong and uh novak Um, and follows Estella, who is a young and clever grifter who's determined to make a name for herself in the fashion world. She soon meets a pair of thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they build a life for themselves on the streets of London. However, when Estella befriends fashion legend, the Baroness Von Hellman, played wonderfully by Emma Thompson, she embraces her wicked side to become the rash and revenge-bent Cruella. Um, So this is a film that I, like I mentioned, I just didn't have that anticipation for because I just felt like we were heading down that same road of a film that doesn't really have that style nor substance and is really just another uh, way to make cash off a title that we're aware of or a title that we know, you know, that those regular um main states in the cinema world i guess and we keep seeing a trend in hollywood where the original filmmaking seems to be taking a back seat to the ips that fans and moviegoers are aware of now from a business standpoint it makes complete sense why would you risk millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to make a film that people aren't aware of. It's always a safe bet to go with something that we do know, something that audiences can really gravitate towards. Um, And I guess Cruella was an interesting one just because we like those villain origin stories. And I think since The Joker made over a billion dollars worldwide, it has become quite... I guess Hollywood has sort of taken that as, oh, people want to see these origin stories for these characters. They want to know these characters. And it's always a hard thing to balance because really what you're doing is you're creating a character or bringing a character to the big screen that the audience has to connect and relate to in some fashion. Otherwise, you're going to hate the film. You have to have someone who you understand, at least in the the main role, um, and in this film, I wouldn't say that Cruella is particularly a bad person. Yes, she's a thief, and yes, she does a few things wrong here and there, but she's not someone who I would call a villain. And I, I guess the point is that it's, you know, making her a villain. But when we get to the end of the film, it still doesn't feel like we're into that, you know, that villainess type uh, persona as of yet. Cruella doesn't feel evil by the end of the film. She has done a few questionable things, but she's still not evil. The main villain of this film is the Baroness, played perfectly by Emma Thompson. But I I guess the studio mentality behind that is like we need the untold origin story of how Cruella went from being, you know, a, a lovely little girl to wanting to kill puppies. So that's sort of the transition and that's where we're heading. But is the journey, you know... To that point, is it explored well enough here? And I think what I'm trying to get at here is just trying to say that I guess the studio mentality is to think, oh, the untold story of Cruella, how did she become Cruella Deville? It's not that that can't work. It has worked in the past, but it's just the route that we take to get to that point. And I guess the issue with that is just the way that it's marketed. And our expectations for Cruella to become this evil, unlikable character. Um, But if you're telling it from the perspective of having a feature film about this specific character, we need to gravitate towards them. We need to understand them. We need to at least like them a little. Whether it's liking them in a sarcastic sense or it's liking them in the sense that we enjoy the performance but we don't enjoy the character themselves. Like Heath Ledger's Joker or sadistic maniac. But... We really like Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker so we can really gravitate towards that character. Um, And going back to that Joker analogy that I had uh, originally with uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance as the Joker in 2019's film Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. In that film, the character's presented in a way that he is likable. He's not relatable in any sense, but because of his mental disability... Um, his home life and things like that, we can sort of gravitate towards that character a little more and feel that sympathetic nature to him because he's the product of the world that he's grown up in. He's not really the product of someone who was born naturally evil. It's that progression towards those events that take place at the end of the film. Now, with Cruella, she's starting from a point where she's in a, you know, she, she's a bit of a mischievous kid. She, um, has a bit of a backstory that's explored in the film with the Baroness, which I won't get into here. Um, But those sorts of of things lead then to her villainous turn towards the end of the film. And she sort of splits herself off into having that dual persona. And I guess symbolically her hair representing that as well. So you have Estella. um, She has red hair as Estella, she dyes her hair. As Cruella, she goes back to her natural hair, which is the classic black and white that we know uh, Cruella de Vil to have. Um, and that was all really interesting and I really liked that, that sort of stuff in the film because as far as the actual film goes itself, I, I guess we can go into it. I, I really did enjoy this film. I found it to have that style and that substance that I think has been missing from these other films. The reason I like Pete's Dragon so much is because of David Lowry's direction. He's a fantastic filmmaker directing a film called A Ghost Story, which I would highly recommend if you haven't seen it. And uh, this year's The Green Knight uh, with A24 he's also directed, which is one of my most anticipated films for the year. So I enjoy when a director's stamp is on their product. Here I can feel Craig Gillespie's stamp on this film. Now, Craig Gillespie's films prior to this, including like another two Disney films that he did, um, A Million Dollar Arm, which I haven't seen, The Finest Hours, which I have seen. He also directed the 2011 remake of... Fright Night, which is another film that I actually do quite enjoy as well. Um, But as far as a a directorial style that he has in those films, I couldn't really pinpoint, you know, what he carries over in each film. He's a competent filmmaker, um, and he's a filmmaker that I do enjoy. I've liked nearly all of his films. Um, Lars and the Real Girl, which is a film that came out in 2007, starring Ryan Gosling, is so weird, so obscure, but a film I absolutely adore. Um, And in that film, it's more of like coming from an indie background and a bit of an indie um, sensibility to that film. Um, But I really did enjoy what he was able to do with that film. And and I guess a bit of that carries over here as well. And I guess in 2019, oh, 2017, sorry, getting my years mixed up, he directed I, Tonya as well. And Tonya, um, uh, Tonya is, of course, a pretty evil person in real life. I mean, she did some questionable things, but... She was a villain, um, and I guess she was led to that sort of uh, real-life villainy in that film, but um, he sort of carries a bit of that over here, and he puts a strong emphasis on those characters. So I really liked what he was able to do here with Estella slash Cruella. I thought that she was a not so much a sympathetic character, and I didn't really feel sorry for her at all during the film, but I don't think I was supposed to because she was overcoming her difficulties and you know her obstacles by herself um and emma stone really does convey that in a in a i guess a shrugging it off kind of way like she never feels like she's down in the dumps because of what's happened she always feels like she is you know standing up to the man kind of thing and i i enjoyed that and i thought that was kind of powerful the way that that was all handled I loved when our two leads in Emma Thompson and Emma Stone locking horns. They were fantastic. Both of them on screen together were really great. And I think Emma Thompson overshadows Emma Stone a bit here because she is so fantastic. She's definitely like channeling a bit of Meryl Streep um, as Miranda from um, Devil Wears Prada. Like you can really feel that influence. And I, I guess because it's dealing with the fashion industry, it's hard to go past that comparison because that is the obvious influence for her character, which I'm completely fine with. And I think the way that it handles it, it does feel like it does belong in this world. It doesn't feel out of place. So I really did enjoy that. And I thought Emma Thompson was really, really strong here. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if she does walk away with either a Best Supporting Actress nomination um, at the Oscars or Golden Globe. She does feel like she does uh, deserve some recognition because she's really good here. And I don't really acknowledge a lot of those live action performances from a lot of this Disney fair. A lot of it has been pretty bland. And I'm going to go back to Pete's dragon again. Uh, the best performance in that film is Carl Urban as, um, I guess the villainous type character in that film, but he's fantastic in that movie. And I thought here, Emma Thompson's really good as well. um, and like I said, Emma, Emma Stone is really good in the role, don't get me wrong, but she does feel a little overshadowed at certain points because Emma Thompson is such a presence on screen. She commands every scene that she's in and she feels larger than life in a very villainous type of way. And I, I guess that's the Disney villain or or just that prequel villain um, type issue that presents itself with doing a prequel on a villain you sort of have to have another villainous character to compete with this character so we can sympathize with our villain slash anti-hero. It's just what happens in these films. Like, even go across to, like, Venom in the the Venom movie that came out in 2018, Tom Hardy's Venom. Venom being one of Spider-Man's biggest villains. Um, But here... And I guess he's a bit of an anti-hero in the comics too, Eddie Brock is. But in that film... You have to present the big bad that he has to go up against because it's not enough to just have you know just the villain. We have to have someone that they're competing with, just so that we can establish you know who we're meant to be following. And the problem's going to carry over with Venom too because he's taking on Carnage, played by Woody Harrelson. So um, that that just that's just the problem with doing these villain films because you do need to have some kind of sympathetic hero um, present in the villain. Um, which does automatically make them an anti-hero. So I don't know if we have these types of films um, in going forward, if these types of films will be able to turn into their end results. So what I mean by that is, will Cruella become 101 Dalmatians? uh, Cruella in 101 Dalmatians? I don't think that's possible with the direction you've taken. There's like a post-credit sting at the end of the film where uh, she's giving Pongo to um, the lawyer who... Uh, gets fired um, during the course of the film. So uh, uh, Pongo being, of course, the the Dalmatian from 101 Dalmatians. So we have that establishment that that's the direction they want to head. But by the film's end, I don't think Cruella is that evil. So I don't think we can really go there. You know what I mean? Like it just sort of sets itself up to go one way um and that's the direction they want to go but i don't think i can see cruella skinning puppies and we don't leave the film or this film in that situation so it, it's interesting and it's just a interesting predicament for the film to find itself in because will we go from this now to you know cruella 2 like is there another bit of the story that's missing before 101 dalmatians i don't really know um and i'm interested to see where they go with anything else with this character because I really just enjoyed the setting. We had the 1970s aesthetic because that's when the film set, and I thought the costume design was beautiful. Another Oscar nomination heading their way for that because all the costumes were larger than life and fantastic. Um, But just the settings of 1970s London, like it looked fantastic. Um, But I was shocked to find out the price tag of this film. It cost reportedly uh, over $180 million, which is just absurd. When I have a look at the film, and I understand it's got – two big leads in Emma Stone and Emma Thompson but your your cast aren't really chewing up the um you know the production budget for this film. Their costumes aren't that extravagant that I can see them really, you know, ripping into that budget either. The film does have an overbearing amount of uh, music from the 1970s period. So every scene it feels like a new song is playing and I had a look at the playlist which I have open on my phone at the moment. Um, and the playlist has, I think, I'm just having a look, um, has 34 songs. So nearly two hours of music in total. And of course, they don't play two hours of music during the film. Um, but that's a lot of songs. Um, and each one of them is present in the film. So we have, you know, some really good music, uh, obvious music. There's a sequence when Cruella is sort of putting a team together and come together by Ike and Tina Turner plays and it's like, that's very on the nose and obvious, but that's okay. Um, But I really did enjoy the music, don't get me wrong. It just sort of threw me off a bit because uh, I guess another comparison I can make is to 2016 Suicide Squad and one of my biggest issues with that film was the overbearing number of pop songs that just felt like they were just playing. It was like a continuous loop. Every single sequence, every character introduction, they had their own song. And it sort of just takes you out of the movie a bit. And I think Guardians of the Galaxy were the first to do it. They There is a lot of pop music and, and you know, 1980s and 70s rock in those films, even 60s rock too. Um, but that works in that film because of the significance that the music actually plays uh, with, uh, uh, you know, Star-Lord, uh, Peter Quill's family and what that um, awesome mix Actually, you know, the significance that that has to the connection that he has with his mother. So in that film, it makes sense where here it just feels like a bombardment of music. And I wonder if that came into the production budget, because obviously it did. But I wonder if that's why it's blown out by so much, because the royalties that they would be paying to use this music would be astronomical. Many of the artists have passed away, mind you. So I imagine the estates would be just, you know, raking in the money from this film it's just a lot um i, I it was just something i noticed and i i i wondered if that contributed to that budget because there was nothing else on screen that looked like it ate up that much money um cgi it's 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 light on cgi the only cgi aspects are the baroness has three um three dalmatians um all three dalmatians were cgi during the film and it made me think too if that was uh, um something that Disney has moved into um with their films in general is the absence of having live animals on set. Uh, another film I noticed it in and it was from the Fox Disney merger was Call of the Wild. Uh I never saw the film, but in the trailer for that film it was the obvious CGI dog and it looked terrible. And, of course, last year we had the live-action... Or the year before, sorry, it was when Disney Plus first came out. We had the Lady and the Tramp live-action film, which I did see. Uh, And in that film, all the characters are all CGI too, that mix of live-action CGI. And it just made me think that... I wonder if that's the direction they're going. It's very obvious, and each time the Dalmatians were on screen, they just took me completely out of the film because they don't move properly. It's obviously CGI. So when they're running towards things or... It does a slow-motion shot of the of the Dalmatians. I was like, that is so obvious and so bland. It just sort of disappoints me a bit because I don't like overuse of CGI. I understand it, don't get me wrong. It, it can be a bit difficult, I suppose, for um, you know, the the cast and crew to manage actual live animals on set. But at the same time, I just think that sometimes less is better. And maybe if you're going that route, maybe. Polish the CGI, especially if you're spending $180 million on this movie to make it look a little better, or don't use it as much. I I think they're your two options because surely I'm not the only one who's sitting there watching just thinking, that's a fake dog, because it just doesn't look real. And I know that it's that comparative uh, thing, and I I talked about in my Raya and the the Last Dragon review, um, that the characters themselves, when they're interacting with CGI, it sort of detracts a little from the realism of the CGI. So when you have a fully CGI movie like The Lion King or even The Jungle Book, or even if you want to go to like an animated film like Raya and the Last Dragon, the CGI characters sort of fit and the animals and stuff, they do have that photorealism about them because they fit their artificial world that they're populating. Where here, you're mixing CGI with live action. So it doesn't really have that same effect. So when you're seeing that CGI against the live action, it just has that fake effect. One of my biggest ones, which I mentioned as well in my Raya review is the way that the Marvel films use water. One of my favorite sequences in any of the Marvel films is in Iron Man 3, where we see Tony Stark's house in Malibu crash into the water when the Mandarin launches an attack. Um, And the way that 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 scene's all filmed. But I just remember the exterior shots where we've got a cut back and forth between James Badge Dale's character who's launching the missiles into Tony's house. We cut from him to then the cars and, like, you know, Pepper and Rebecca Hall's characters sort of just, like, flying through the air. Um, And Tony goes down into the water. And I just remember the scenes of, like, the actual house hitting the water and just how fake the water looked. It was just really obvious. And for a film that cost $200 million, I was thinking, why can't they make water look good? Um, But it's pretty obvious that the reason they can't make the water look good is because it's hard to sort of replicate that in a real-life setting. In CGI films like *Raya* um, *Moana*, in particular, *Moana* is a fantastic-looking film, uh, and that's just due to the, you know, the the characters. You have like Moana's character, you know, um, and Maui, both of them standing on the boat, and the water's crashing against you. Like, wow, that water looks good, but the characters themselves look really fake. So I wonder if you put the same water effects into that sequence on *Iron Man 3*, how that would look. Um, And it's just something that crosses my mind, and I'm sort of going on a bit of a tangent here, but. That's just where my mind goes to when I see these effects because some of them do look really out of place. Uh, In particular, in this film, it's the dogs and every animal. So uh, Cruella has her own dog as well, and that dog is also CGI. It was real for a couple of sequences when she's patting it at the very beginning, Um, but the rest of the movie, it's a fake dog, um, and it's real as well in some close-up shots, I noticed. Um, and her two sidekick characters as well, Um, Jasper, who I thought was actually really good in the film too. I thought both of them were really, really uh, strong performances from uh, yeah uh, Joel Fry, who plays Jasper, and Paul Walter Hauser, who plays Horace. I thought they were really good in the film, actually, a little side note. I thought both actors did a really good job, and I liked their dynamic together. I also liked them with Emma Stone. I thought they all played off each other really well, which I enjoyed um, but yeah, I noticed that their dog as well also just had that CGI, it was CGI as well, and a lot of the sequences they had to use CGI for it, I understand that, but it was pretty obvious in certain points. But yeah, overall, guys, I, I think this is a really good film. I, I think it's better than every other live-action film that's come for it. I like it a little better than Pete's Dragon, which is funny because I really like Pete's Dragon, Um, but I found this film to be really really entertaining. I, I just found myself really engaged during it. I like actors. I thought everyone did a really good job. I like that 1970s uh, London. It had that real retro aesthetic, which I really liked. And I thought that they did a really good job with the uh, set dressing and the costume and everything. I thought that'll look fantastic. Um, and I, I did... In- just a general story. And I understand that we sort of reached that issue where what's this going next? Are we sort of going into that 101 Dalmatians? That's for the sequel to deal with. As a standalone film, I I, I guess being that can you actually look at this as a standalone film as we know that it leads into something larger? I'm going to, for the sake of this review, I'm going to look at it as a standalone film. And I I liked the direction it went. I thought that it was fun. I I thought that it was stylistic. I thought Gillespie did a really good job of putting everything together because I thought it looked fantastic. Um, despite the dodgy CGI in certain points. But overall, guys, I think it's a really entertaining film. I would recommend checking it out. Uh, it is on Disney Premier Access at the moment, as well as playing in theatres, uh, which is quite convenient, which you want to go about it. If you want to stay at home in the comfort of your home, especially here in Australia during winter, you can do that, or you can venture into the cinemas, which is where I would recommend going to see it. But overall, guys, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I thought that Cruella was a lot of fun. Like I said, I do have light issues music-wise. Where's the sort of story going as well? Um, And and some of the CGI effects. But overall, guys, I think it's a thoroughly entertaining film. I liked a lot about it, and I didn't think I was going. I think that's why when I have those lowered expectations going into a film like this, I find myself more entertained during it because I wasn't expecting it to be anything uh, and that's a funny thing about expectations, I suppose. Um, but yeah, guys, really entertaining film, so definitely go and check it out. But that brings this review to a close, guys. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you check out my other reviews. I've done some for Willy's Wonderland, Boss Level, Rider and the Last Dragon, um, The rule, Things Heard and Seen. There's plenty of reviews out there for you guys to check out. Make sure you rate and review the podcast down below too, guys, and subscribe if you haven't. Also, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at OzMovieGeek. Uh, all the links to my socials are below. Uh, But thank you all for listening, guys. I really do appreciate your ongoing support. It's been fantastic. Look forward to more reviews coming shortly. I'm going to have a collaborative review again with Jess. Uh, We're going to be doing a review of Lefto, which will be coming very shortly. And it's not going to be a full review. It's more going to be a discussion. um, Just really discussing our thoughts of the show, what the ending really means. It's just going to be a bit of a spoiler discussion. Look forward to that one coming very shortly as well, guys. Yeah, and check out my other reviews. And until next time, guys, Peace out.